Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through the book of Philippians. Now, if you're looking for a church home, a place to connect with other believers and to grow in your understanding of God's Word, we would love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you want more information, you can find that at calvaryfayetteville.com or email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com. Our phone number is 479-442-4634. Again, on today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is covering the topic, Learning to Be What We've Become. And we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Let's listen together. Our text is Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 because they all go together and form one uh, thought, but we will only focus today on the first four verses. Thank you, Dan and musicians, for leading us in worship today. Actually, the worship is not over because the singing has stopped. Uh, Oftentimes, we only think of the music portion of the service as the worship portion of the service, but we worship God in song. We worship God when we pray. We worship God when we preach and study and read Scripture together. We worship God as we fellowship with one another before the service. And after the service, our lives remember All of life is worship, and especially as we gather as the people of God, it is an expression of worship. Now, before we read our text, remember that Paul is challenging this church who is living under Roman persecution, just as he is under Roman persecution, incarcerated in Rome. He is urging these believers at Philippi to stand their ground firmly united. We read about this in the closing words of chapter 1. Not only to stand their ground firmly united, but to strive for the faith of the gospel. There's a time to stand our ground and not give an inch. And there's a time to advance uh, our lines for the cause of Christ. There is never a time for retreat for the people of God. But he's challenging them to stand their ground firmly united to strive for the faith of the gospel, realizing that in doing so, they are going to suffer for Jesus' sake. Now, he's going to expand on that in chapter 2, and he's going to challenge us by explaining how this will look in life and in practice within the church. Now, I realize that some of the things Paul said in chapter 1 are mountain peaks of of Scripture. I understand that when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, that 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 is a passage, that's something we will always remember. And it lifts our spirits. When When he says, I have a desire to depart and to be with the Lord, if the choice was mine, I would rather go to heaven right now than to continue living. And he, he challenges us. And, and he says to this church, I know that the one who began a good work in you is going to complete it. And these are mountain peaks of truth. And in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 2, we have another uh, range of mountain peaks as he talks about Jesus humbling himself and leaving heaven and coming to earth, uh, the amazing story of the incarnation of Christ. And between these mountain peaks, he's going to say some words in verses 1 through 4 that may seem a little bit tedious. They may seem a little bit ho-hum. They may seem like we are down somewhere kind of in the desert flatlands looking at the mountain peaks that we've read and that we're going to read, and that this isn't quite as glorious. But understand, it is. It is. Let's um, pick up our text. Paul is talking about unity, 
unity in the life of the church, unity, an indispensable quality, a necessary character trait of the Lord's church if we are to experience his anointing and his blessing upon us. Unity, the number one thing Satan wants to destroy in every church. Verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Now here's the example. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. We thanks, give thanks to God for it. Now this passage contains an exhortation and an example. The first four verses are written to exhort the church to encourage the church, to challenge the church to unity. The last verses, verses 5 through 11 that we read, are there giving us an example of how you and I should live and how you and I should walk. Today, the exhortation. Next Sunday, Lord willing, the example. Now, I know that you hear me refer to unity often and read verses about unity often. And if you were a newcomer to Calvary Church or if you've not been around long, it may cause you to wonder, or even if you have been around here for a long time, maybe in the back of your mind you wonder, am I in some way seeking to address some problem in our church, some lack of unity. And I want you to know, consciously, absolutely not. If there is disunity in the Calvary family, I'll be honest with you, I'm unaware. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I'm pretty slow on the uptake sometimes. But I'm not aware of it. So I'm not seeking to address or to preach towards a problem. It is my job to do that, and from time to time you will hear me do that, but I'll be very straightforward about it. But understand that once there is a problem, if we wait then to see what the Bible has to say about unity and for that study or for that focus to seek to be curative, sometimes it's much harder then to learn what we need to learn instead of a curative way in a preventative way. The Bible tells us we are to fight for unity in the church. We are to make it our goal, our ambition, not just to correct it if it is not right, 
but to prevent disunity from being allowed even inside the door, to recognize the devil when he seeks to work in my heart or your heart in ways that would cause, that would disrupt the unity of the Lord's church. So I'm not speaking here in any kind of way seeking to cure a problem. I'm speaking to you because we're working through the book of Philippians, and he's writing to this church, a very good church, a very blessed church. But even in that church, there were likely some issues that this is going to help. Now, we find in Paul's exhortation, in these first four verses, we find a principle. We find a truth. And I believe if we can go ahead and if you'll try to stay with me and wade off into the weeds for just a few minutes, I want to try to show you how God has put the Word of God together in a way that is amazing, in a way that, that so much meets our needs. If we, can, if we want to grasp the message of Scripture, we need to grasp the way God has put it together. So what I want to be talking about for just a few minutes is going to be a grammar lesson, okay? A grammar lesson. And it's going to specifically focus on the Greek grammar. I know that probably you get tired of hearing preachers or teachers say, now the Greek word here is such and such, but understand there's a reason why God gave us the Bible in the Greek and Hebrew language. There's a reason. Don't be offended by this, especially on the 4th of July weekend, but the English language is atrocious. It is just atrocious. Words can be used in so many ways. We routine, routinely change the meaning of words. We make it our own. We say things like y'all. The English language is very imprecise. And when the Bible is written, when we read our English language, uh, language Bibles, understand Understand, there's a reason why when you read from one version to the next version to the next version, sometimes there's little differences in the way that the translators have presented it to us. In contrast, the Greek language is very specific. It is very detailed. And there are specific words that's important to get them the best we can. And there's specific ways in which it is, the Word of God is put together that makes this book different, different from any other book you will ever read. It's why we put our faith and our trust in the living Word of God. These are the words of the God of heaven. Now, I'm referring here specifically to this, this way that the words are used. And we find it used in the English as well, but we find it taken to a different degree in the Greek. We find that forms of verbs in the Bible, specifically the New Testament, are sometimes either in the indicative mood or the imperative mood. Now, I really do need to call Georgia up here because she has been studying Greek more recently than I and probably knows more than I did because to be very honest, when I was studying Greek, I was deeply in love with a girl from Searcy, Arkansas, and I had a hard time focusing on Greek verbs when I could focus on Tony Greer. And all the men in the service said, amen. I don't want to bore you with this, but if you can see this, if you can just really focus in for just a few minutes and see this, it can be life-changing in how you look at what God tells us. And this is because, well, let me read just one statement by one Bible teacher, and this is why he stated how important it is. 
He said when, when God uses these indicatives and imperative uh, moods and forms of verbs, he said it is to show you how Scripture uses language to invite us into a new story to cast us as characters in a life-giving script to put you and me into the story, the life-giving script here, and to make us into actors of the kingdom of God, for that's what we are. We are not to be just spectators. We are participants. We are actors. And this is because indicatives create new identities for the people of God and the imperatives give them a script for how to live the roles they now play. If it will make it easier for you to, to kind of think of this word indicative, keep this in mind, indicatives indicate truths to us. They indicate truths to us, indicatives. And then imperatives are things that we must do. It's imperative to follow the commandments of the Lord. So, so let's look at that for just a minute. First of all, the indicatives. Let me give you some statements about them. Indicatives are statements of fact. They are statements of fact. They are words in the story to help us see what the story is communicating to us. They record words of conversation. And all of these in the Greek are in the indicative mood. They are action words. They shape the storyline of each scene. They shape the storyline. They narrate events. Jesus walked into Jerusalem or Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. It tells us information. It narrates the events. Jesus wept. That is an indicative statement. Walked and wept are both used, these kinds of words, to move the plot forward. Okay, it's the details of the story. But now, and that's, the same is true in the English language, by the way. But here's where the Greek language, specifically in the New Testament, this is where it goes further. This is where it applies to you and me. This is where we find the, the, the hand of God at work. Not just telling us the storyline, but indicatives also create new realities. New realities in profound ways. Because some of the things that the Lord tells us in the storyline, some of the things that he speaks to us speak new truths that have never been heard before. You can't read them anywhere else. Now, I'm going to step away from the book of Philippians and go over to the book of 1 Peter, and we'll see some verses on the, on the screen in just a minute that will help you see this because in 1 Peter we see it very, very clearly. One of the clearest examples of how new uh, realities are created by the way God speaks these indicative verbs to us we find, for in instance, in the words, you are, in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Now, he's speaking to suffering Christians. He's speaking to downtrodden Christians. They have a, who he was writing to, those downtrodden Christians, were, in some ways, like the Philippian Christians. Because the Philippian Christians, remember, they were living in a Roman colony where every citizen was to reflect Rome. And this was a little Rome. And yet these Philippian believers, remember, they didn't represent Rome any longer. They had been born again. They represented a different city. They represented the city of heaven. And he's saying when Paul writes to the Philippians and calls them citizens... He's talking to them as citizens of heaven. Remember that you are to reflect heaven. 
You're not there to be a good Roman. You are there to be a good heavenite. I just made that word up. You are to reflect the glories of heaven, a new creation. And so Peter is writing to downtrodden Christians in other places who were experiencing the same thing, though most of them did not live in Roman colonies, but they lived in the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, if you were suffering, if you were down on your luck, if you were experiencing hardship, it was viewed whether that was by Roman persecution or just the hardship of life, it was viewed that you were weak, that you were less than, and that the gods were against you. And Peter writes to them, and he says, you are, in chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. And he's saying to them that as outcasts in their world, as nobodies in the Roman Empire, that is actually what qualified them and what signified that they belonged to a world, to a kingdom that was much better. It was their being rejected by the world and by Rome that identified them with Christ who was also rejected when he came to earth. We'll talk about that next week. So he says, you are, and he gives those four things, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Let me tell you something. They could read every book in the libraries of their day and never found that truth anywhere else. It's only in the Word of God. So these indicative statements, who you are, and he's speaking to them as Peter writes, he is creating, he is moving, he is showing us a whole new reality. Now listen, Christians, if you're a believer today, you are those four things also. You are a chosen people. You didn't choose God. God chose you. You could not choose him or even say yes to him until he had first of all chosen you and given you the faith and the belief to do so. You are a royal priesthood. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation living within a very wicked nation in many ways. You are a people for God's own possession. He claims you as his. He has stamped his name on you. And he says you are the sheep of his fold. You are the cattle of his pasture. Now for people living in a wounded community of Jesus followers, this is a privileged member to be a member of the kingdom of God. So that's the new reality. That's an example. Now, imperatives. Let's switch gears and now go to the imperatives. The commands. Imperatives are direct commands that demand immediate response. They are like, uh, they're like marching orders that a general gives to his soldiers. Okay, these are what imperatives are. They are very common in Scripture. Sometimes they are in the negative, sometimes they are in the positive. For instance, we are told by Jesus, do not be like the hypocrites are. That's an imperative. Don't be like them. But then we are sometimes even given what seem to be almost, almost radical commands by Jesus. Leave your father and your mother. Be willing to leave them and follow me. Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. They are common in Scripture. There are many kinds of commands. The scripts, and they are the scripts that help the Christ followers lean into our new roles as citizens of God's kingdom. That's a long sentence to get, but understand when you read a command in Scripture, it's a part of the script God has given you to live.
to live. It's the script you are to follow as Christians. Now, going back to Peter, let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 9. We already read it, a portion of it. It's almost cr- Can you read that aloud with me? Let's read that aloud, and as soon as we finish that, we'll change the, change the screen to the next two verses, verses 11 and 12. Let's read it in unison. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against a wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, as Peter is inspired of the Lord to write those verses, Understand, there are indicative statements. There are imperatives. Let's look at the uh, verses 9 through uh, 10, first of all, and notice the indicatives. They are in yellow. You don't have to read it aloud, but notice he says, you are a chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We've already talked about that. Go down to verse 10. Once you were not a people, But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That, those are indicative statements that create a new reality for you and me. They tell us who we are. They move this story. They they bring us into the story, though they were written 2,000 years ago. These are statements of truth, indicating the heart of Christ for his people. Now notice in verses 11 and 12, There's only one indicative statement there. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So we are sojourners in this world. We are exiles. This is not our home. We don't belong here long term. We're only passing through here. But even as we pass through and experience great hardship, we are still God's chosen people. We are still a people called out especially for him. Now notice the imperatives of those same verses, verses 9 and 10. We are those different things that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is the command. This is where we are to move. Because we are those others, we are here to do what? What does it mean to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness? What does that mean? How do we do that? We worship. God doesn't call upon the fallen world to worship, but he commands us to worship. We are to worship, we are to live, we are to talk about, we are to proclaim the greatness of our God in every way that we can. By the choices we make, by the words that we speak, even having our thoughts conform to his by the thoughts that we think. That's the imperative. Now what is the imperative in verses 11 and 12? Look at this. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's something we are not supposed to do. We are not supposed to be uh, guided by the passions of the flesh. These things wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they're going to do, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay, do you see the pattern here? It's all through scripture. 
It's all through the New Testament. God gives us information about ourselves that we can learn nowhere else. You're not going to get it in school. You're not going to get it watching TV. You're not going to know who you are by the novels of this world. You're not going to find out who you are on social media. Oh, you may see a good truth or statement from time to time, but understand uh, it's not the same as Scripture. So God is telling us who we are. And understand that the imperatives, the commands of Scripture, follow me now, cannot be lived without the indicatives of understanding who we are. To just teach our children in Sunday school or children's church, thou shalt, thou shalt not, is not enough. Is not enough. To be given only statements of laws, do this and don't do that, and that's what Christianity is, and if you'll do them well, you'll be a good Christian. That has absolutely rejected grace and flip-flopped the story. Because you don't become a Christian by what you do or don't do. You're not saved by keeping rules. You're not born again by living some kind of self-righteousness that causes you to think you're better than someone else. You can't even convince God about that. You can't live to the best of your ability, keeping all the rules and say, well, certainly God won't reject me because understand, we are sinners and we are lost and we are dead in our sin. It is only by understanding the imperative, the um, indicatives of who we are and who Christ says we are that we can fulfill his will in doing what he tells us to do. Indicatives always come before imperatives because our identity defines our responsibilities. Or putting it this way, it's on the screen, it's only because of who we are that we can do what he wants us to do. What he has commanded us to do. All right. Let's get back out of the weeds and get back on the trail. Back to Philippians chapter 2. How is that truth and that information communicated to us in this passage? I'm going to just walk through these things very quickly because they're really understandable. But I hope you'll see the pattern. What is the central imperative of verses 1 through 4? What is the number one command. It is found in verse 2 where Paul says, complete my joy. Complete my joy. That's the command. That's the imperative statement. This is what you are to do. Complete my joy. Now, let me say at the very outset, that sounds like a very selfish statement, does it not? How would you like it if all you heard from me every Sunday was, do what I want you to do? You wouldn't like that. Complete my joy. Some say, well, that sounds like he's saying, be sure that my desires are fulfilled, that my agenda is your agenda, that my plans and priorities are central to all of you, too. Now, before we castigate the apostle and just shove him to the side for being selfish and self-focused here by saying to these church members at Philippi, listen, complete my joy. We need to remember what his heart is. And his heart was spilled out for us in chapter 1. 
If you will pause to remember what his joy, what his desires, what his agenda, and what his plans and priorities were, you understand this is not a selfish command. This is a command that flows out of great love, desiring the best for these people and desiring also for the glory of God. For the last six weeks, we've talked about what his heart was in chapter 1. I'm sure of this. I've already quoted some of these verses to you. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, Philippians, will bring it to completion. God is at work in you. I hold you all in my heart, for you are partakers with me of grace. I yearn for you. I yearn for you. All of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. It is my prayer for you that your love may abound more and more. I want more than anything else for you to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus, for you to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. His heart was full for these people. I want to say to you, can I say to you, that any pastor who is worth anything at all could honestly say those same words to the congregation he pastors. Philippians chapter 1 has challenged me to remember what it means to love your congregation, to love your people. So when he says, complete my joy, listen, they know that his life, Paul's life, was so aligned with Christ's life that all he wanted was for God's glory and for the best for this church. Complete my joy. He is thinking of what is the absolute best for them and for the kingdom, the faraway kingdom that they represent on earth. Okay, so that is the imperative of these four verses. Now, he explains that imperative, what it will looks like, what it looks like for them to complete his joy. In fact, he goes right on in verse 2, and he tells them four things. He said, complete my joy by being of the same mind. By having the same priorities. For loving God in the same way. Have the same mind. Have the same love. That means the same devotedness, concern, and generosity for each other and for the lost world. By having or by being in full accord, that doesn't mean they all rode around in one Honda. You'll figure that out somewhere or somewhere on the way home today. But by being in one accord, that they were united in unity with each other. And again, he comes back to it. By being of one mind, living and working for the same purpose. This is how you complete my joy. It's what every faithful pastor wants for his congregation. It's the imperative. Do this. Do this. It takes work. It's hard. It doesn't come easy. And he actually gets really personal and meddlesome in verse 3 and 4 as he tells us in the very nitty-gritty of everyday life what this has to look like. Look at verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So he tells them four things. He says, watch out for, do nothing from selfish ambition. 
That's selfishness. Don't live by selfishness. That means don't have a contentious disposition. Do nothing out of conceit. The word there suggests emptiness, vain conceit. It's worthless. Putting yourself first is worthless. It's empty. It's devilish. It's not what it means to be a heavenly citizen. And then he kind of gives us the positive part of it. In humility, we'll talk about that next week, count others more significant than yourselves. And when you do that, what do you do? You are not looking to your own interest. You are looking to the interests of others. You care more, not about what people think. You care more about the needs of people. Looking to the interest of others, not your own. Now, folks, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. For a group of people, even not a large group of people, but for a group of people to have one mind, to have the same love, to be in full accord, to live with one mind and to move forward, striving for the gospel with a single-mindedness, doing nothing out of selfish ambition, doing nothing out of personal conceit, but always looking to the interest of others and always seeing about it. Let me tell you something. Let me just say this one statement. That is supernatural. It's supernatural. It can't be done in the flesh. It can't be done by your own wisdom, by your own strength, walking in your own ways. That's supernatural living. And you know what? That is what God has called us to. That's what Peter meant when he said, you are a chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are a priesthood. You are specially called out people belonging to God. God has called you to a supernatural life. And I know what you're thinking, exactly what I'm thinking. How in the world do we do that? I'm going to suggest to you that, that you can't find any other command, any other imperative in the New Testament of Paul or Peter or John writing to Christian people. You will not find any other command more difficult for God's people to follow than this one right here. It is your greatest challenge. It is our greatest challenge as Calvary Baptist Church, a colony of heaven representing a holy city so far away in this weak and fallen world in which we live. So how do we do that? How is it possible? Let me draw this to a close. I've kept you long enough. You know that. Where are the imperative? Where are the indicatives? Where are the statements of truth? Where, where has God informed us in this passage that we've been called to a higher way of life and what new realities have been created by the results of the gospel in our lives? They are found in verse 1. Verse 1, five realities of the new birth. And he puts them almost as a rhetorical question, although there's nothing rhetorical about it. He begins chapter 2 with the word so. He could have begun it with the word since instead of so, if. He could have said since, because he is stating fact. 
if there is any encouragement in Christ. The word is paraclesis. It means one called alongside to help you. He is basically saying you have an encouragement and that encouragement has come from God himself when he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is with you. It's a consolation. It is a cheering and supportive influence. It is a joyful one speaking into your ear. I'm beside you. I'll help you do this. You can do this. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, while the encouragement is, is more of a loud voice reminding us he's never leaving us, the comfort from love is more of a gentle and quiet encouragement within. You are loved by the King of heaven. You are loved by the King of glory. If that comforts your heart at all, now listen, listen. If the fact that me saying, listen, God loves you, if that doesn't do something to your heart, you need to repent and get right with God. Because he doesn't say that to just everybody. He speaks his love to those that are his. If there's any comfort from love. If there is any participation in the spirit, the koinonia, the, the oneness, the partnership. We have a partner, the Holy Spirit who lives within us who is the one who walks with us. And not only that, but because I have the Spirit and because you have the Spirit, we are not only one with God. Guess what? We are one with each other and we are giving, given all those one another commands. Love one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Fellowship with one another. On and on and on. If there's any participation, are you in participation with the Spirit? If there is any affection, cherished and tender affections, if there is any sympathy, a kindness in relieving sorrow and want and need, it is to experience and to know the favor and the grace and the mercy of God. Now he says, since you have these things, that's how he begins this chapter. Since you have the encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, since you have God's affection and affection for one another and sympathy, God's sympathy for you, he knows we are but flesh. He doesn't get mad and angry and reject us. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. Since we have all of that, now complete my joy. Because of who you are. Because of what you have in Christ. You can complete my joy being of the same mind, having one heart, rejecting your own self-seeking, not being guided by conceit or, or personal gain or anything else. You can live a supernatural life because God has done all of this for you. Do you see how he has written these verses for us today? There are some indicators of who we are. And because of who we are, we can live supernaturally and we can fulfill some supernatural commandments. Dennis Johnson of Westminster Seminary sums up these truths. How then can we fail to respond to such divinely imparted encouragement, comfort, love, 
and companionship. How can we fail to respond to these things God has given to us? How can we refuse to lay down selfish ambition and vain conceit, our hurt feelings, and our competitive urges? Having received such love, let us beg our Savior to turn our hearts inside out, to treasure others as more important than ourselves, to fight for unity by cultivating the humility that we see in Jesus, the King who stooped to serve us. And that humility that supernatural living requires, we will understand and read about next time. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I am so challenged by these words, by the apostle, the way he loved this church, the way he was willing to sacrifice himself for their good, for God's glory. And Father, how you so provide for and how you have already made us new people that can live so far above the old ways of the world with all of its selfish conceit, with all of its self-seeking, with all of its competitiveness. And you've made it possible for us to live lives that are supernatural, like your, son, your own son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, help us to honor and glorify you. Help us to worship you. Help us to proclaim your glories with our words, with our thoughts, with our deeds, both inside the church and outside the church. Father, make us one, even as you are one. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.